Surface for Business devices are designed for work anywhere. Wherever and however you or your teams work or collaborate, Surface gives your organization the freedom to work anywhere while retaining the control you need to stay secure with built-in security at every layer from chip to cloud protection from Microsoft. Visit www.aka.ms forward slash surfaceforbusiness.ca to learn more about Surface for Business devices. The U.S. presidential election has finally been called, Donald Trump lost, and Joe Biden is set to enter the White House in January. Whatever else this U.S. election revealed about the world we live in, it's a chance to reflect on Canada's own state of affairs. I'm Gabe Friedman, host of Down to Business, and this week I was joined by Stephen Palaz, a special advisor at Osler. If you recognize the name, it's because in June, Palaz stepped down as the governor of the Bank of Canada, where he was just the ninth person to lead Canada's central bank. His appointment started way back in 2013 and stretched well into the coronavirus pandemic earlier this year. During our conversation, Palaz took the possibly unorthodox view that a new presidential administration may not make as big a difference as people think. Sure, there may be a change in tone, but he thinks the populism that characterized the past four years, particularly on trade issues, has longer economic roots and may not be going away anytime soon. We talked about Canada's economy and the increasing importance of the tech sector, as well as the need for a social safety net. In terms of the current economic recovery, Polaz said that the government's income support programs have been critical because it's people on the lower end of the income scale who have been hurt the worst in this crisis. It's a K-shaped recovery, and some parts of the economy have bounced back just fine, but other parts may be in serious trouble. Steve Polaz, it's a real treat to have you on Down to Business. Thanks so much for joining me. Well, it's a pleasure to be here, Gabe. Thanks a lot. Great. So, Obviously, this health pandemic and the social distancing restrictions have created unprecedented strain on our economy. Can you talk for a second about how you characterize the main challenges and features of this economic crisis? Sure. Well, it's uh, it's pretty unique in our history. I think the closest parallel might be 9-11, actually, as opposed to the global financial crisis of 2008. That one there was a financial crisis, not this time. Uh, Housing collapsed, uh, not this time. A lot of big differences. And so I think here what what we're dealing with, I like to characterize it as as the letter K. Uh, and most of the economy is in the top part of the K. I've put in a nice uh, V-shaped uh, recovery, subject to uncertainty, of course, a second wave and out severe. But the bottom part of the K attracts most of our attention because that's the uh, companies uh, that are directly affected and uh, are in a uh, you know, transition now. We're not sure to where, but there could be permanent effects there. The good news is that we're more than 95% back economically, uh, back to where we were in February. And so uh, we're dealing with uh, 4 perhaps 5% of the economy where the problems are most severe. And policymakers have a lot of pieces on the table to help deal with that. This to me seems like really... It's bigger than this crisis in a way. I mean, you characterized it as 5% of the economy is really in trouble. But when you look at the number of people who are affected, it's bigger than that, I think. These are conditions that people were talking about before this crisis that some people, since the pandemic started, have been relatively unaffected. Maybe they're working from home. 
But then 80% of the job losses I've heard are in the service industry. People maybe who were scraping by to begin with. How much does, does that concern you? The fact that they may not be driving the economy, the growth, but they're still part of obviously our society. And we, and we need to make sure everyone's sort of able to survive. Well, it's very concerning. I mean, I don't, I don't mean to make it sound small, uh, but I think that because um, I think four or five percent of the economy and of the labor force is a really big deal, um, but it isn't ninety-five percent, and that's an important distinction. Uh, but I think that the damage, as it has been so far, has been focused, as you say, in the service businesses, and it's of course people who are on the in the, in the lower part, the lower third or so of uh, the income distribution. But this is why the government's income support programs are so very important. In fact, during the, uh, the summer, aggregate disposable income in the economy went up as opposed to down, even though the economy was contracting. And that's because the support programs were, were very aggressive and very, very well targeted. And so the result is the demand in the economy is has been relatively stable. And the question we have as policymakers is what happens to the supply side of the economy? That is, what businesses actually close down? Does that capacity exit the economy for a long time? This would show itself in a long-term unemployment rate that's above normal. Say, you know, we're at 8.9%. Suppose that stayed around 8% for an extended period. That would be very difficult for those people, but you have to bear in mind that we've been in situations like that in the past, and our safety net system works to smooth it out and give people the opportunity to transition into growing parts of the economy. Yeah, this is something I wanted to get into with you. We have seen unprecedented government stimulus, and I think appetite for it, depending, is sort of varied. Some people believe it absolutely needs to be there because we're not close to getting a vaccine. And others are concerned about the sort of long-term impacts of this much borrowing and risk spending and deficits. What's your sort of view or perspective on how we balance these two? Well, I would distinguish between uh, stimulus and uh, support. The first response has been income support, which, as I think everyone will agree, is is critical in that uh, situation. You know, uh, we had over a million people unemployed uh, before the pandemic came. We now have, say, 600,000 in addition to that. If, you, if, if it ended up being as many as 2 million, which is a lot of Canadians for sure, an income support program would cost on the order of $48 billion per year. And that is, of course, within Canada's means. The stimulus side, the government seems to be focusing on is primarily things that will add to long-term economic growth, infrastructure spending, immigration, and uh, things like at least thinking about things like daycare, which addresses an important uh, infrastructure gap. That would add to growth. So those things are really important to the sustainability of whatever debt they do end up taking on because boosting the growth line at a time when interest rates are really low and likely to remain quite low for a long time, perhaps as long as a generation. All that matters is that they can manage to get the economy to grow faster than the rate of interest. And that's headline growth. And that's not that hard to do at these interest rates. And as long as growth is above the rate of interest, then the level of indebtedness declines through time as they simply service the debt. 
So a lot of people have said to me, well, debt globally is going to be as high as it was after the Second World War. And that's roughly true. Around 100% of global GDP is where we're headed and where we were after World War II. We ask people in my age group, you know, the baby boom cohort from uh, post-war, uh, did you notice that burden of debt as you were growing up? And the answer is 100% no. So, so the reason is that the economies grew out of that indebtedness overhang. And I see no reason why we can't uh, manage exactly the same thing this time. Yeah, that's a f- really fascinating anecdote. And the, the period you described, post-World War II, in my mind, I associate that with one of the greatest economic booms in recent memory. What I often hear about is like today's younger people are worried because the opportunity set that they see is smaller than the opportunity set, say, of you know the baby boom generation. Well, I would uh, take a bit of an issue with your premise, uh, Gabe. I think... I remember graduating high school in uh, 1974, and as, as valedictorian, I gave the speech, my first economics speech, even though I'd barely started economics. In fact, I'd be, barely started thinking about economics. And at the time, uh, the, the feeling amongst the graduating class was pretty glum. In the mid-1970s, it was pretty rough, actually, to be entering the Canadian job market. What I included in my speech was that the economy is always transitioning. So there's always, in fact, a K in the economy. It's, that's what creative destruction looks like. As time goes on, the bottom part of the K withers away, but the growth sectors continue to grow. Technological progress is the main driver of this. And we shouldn't be pessimistic about opportunities. I'll give you an example that's more concrete. So 10 years ago, the IT services economy in Canada was virtually zero. It was really, really tiny. In the past five years or so, it's been growing by 7 or 8% per year. It is the fastest growing part of the labor market, and it is the fastest growing export sector. Today, it is like 6 or so percent, 7% of the economy. So it's getting up to be as important, let's say, as the energy sector, it's getting into that neighborhood in just a short time. Now, do people have to learn how to write code in order to have an opportunity? Well, the answer to that is no, because as new technology comes along, it creates great jobs. We know that. We see that every day. And those people spend their money. And that money gets spent not just on new iPads or other other technology. It's spent across the entire economy, and it creates jobs across the entire spectrum of the economy. For instance, in the housing sector or in the construction sector. Those are just obvious things, but of course, across medical care, across education, and and so on, all of those sectors uh, benefit at the same time. It's a gradual process, and that's why you can't dismiss it as, on the textbook, it happens immediately. But in the real world, it takes time for the bottom part of the K to transition into the top part. Okay, so I hear your answer is that there's this phenomenon of creative destruction where every time part of the economy, that bottom K, every time part of the economy doesn't do well, that opens up an opportunity for someone else to create something better where previous businesses had existed. I'm maybe sort of simplifying a little bit, but I think what I was getting at in my question was that, I mean, as bank, as the Bank of Canada governor, I imagine you were squarely focused on what we could quantify, things like jobs and household debt, the sort of economic touchstones that we hear about in the press on a regular basis. But 
there there is this concern about qualitative issues, which you can't really quantify, but people, there is a sense of rising inequality and stuff like that, which can be quantified. How does that figure into the current crisis or or the sort of current economic outlook even before the crisis for you? Yeah. So uh, this goes back to the very basic question around creative destruction. And when I, I mentioned a moment ago about how it eventually benefits everybody, it ben- benefits everybody, but it benefits everybody in different in different ways and in different proportions. In fact, one of the past presidents of the American Economic Association, Arnold Harberger, characterized economic growth coming from technological change uh, really nicely. He said, "He said, you know, most people think of economic growth as like being like yeast, where it spreads around and it goes into every crack and everybody gets some." Or in fact, usually well, the, the ones we've observed, it's more like mushrooms. So the mushrooms pop up in random places, and the people who are right next door to the mushrooms get most of the mushroom. Okay, that doesn't spread around as much. And it's only in round two where those people that really gain from technological change spread the wealth around uh, that we get uh, the secondary effect and everybody benefits. And I think this uh, period of technological change combined with the benefits, societal benefits of globalization has kind of led to some larger swings in income distribution in certain countries in particular, not so much in Canada, but especially in the United States because there's been tax reform at the same time. So the result of this is a rising level of angst and discontent, and that's exactly what populist politics tends to tap into, that level of discontent. And they can identify anybody they want as the the underlying reason. That just gives them a focal point for people to complain about. And so we we must must be careful as we go forward not to destroy the parts that are doing really hard work for our overall level of income. Possibly societies will need, uh, you know, more middle-of-the-road type of redistributive type policies. And the kind of income support I'm talking about during a pandemic, that's an example where the most affected people are in the lower part of the income scale. And if you make a, a very solid income safety net for them, you'll help the society to progress through. And along the way, there will be opportunities for governments to do certain kinds of resets. I'm not an expert on those things, but I'm just talking a very broad term. Fair. Yeah. You know, you talked about the United States for a second there. And given that we're talking a couple of days after there was an election over there, I am kind of wondered if you see the relationship to the United States as being important to this economic recovery, including sort of the outcome of the election, you know, whether that means we may be able to sort of more closely coordinate a response, a health response and open up the border. How important is the U.S. economic recovery to Canada's economic recovery? Well, it's as always, it's critical. That's never changed, and I don't expect it ever to change, not meaningfully. So what what happens there matters a great deal to us, uh, whether it's uh, policy, whether it's just the, the way the economy is evolving, or whether it's politics. It all matters quite a lot. I mean, I think health comes first, and I think that seems to be the the, the overall uh, philosophy, both sides. 
And so uh, the border, from a business point of view, my understanding is the border is managing pretty well. It's just from the uh, individuals, you know, uh, from uh, travel uh, around tourism and, uh, you know, being able to get down to your your place down south and those kinds of things, which are, are actually being disrupted. And so um, how it all shakes out, I really couldn't say. But I think overall, what I'm what I am getting at is that the this undercurrent of I'm using a catchphrase of populist type of uh, reactions uh, has real economic roots, and they're long they're long trends. Okay, these these didn't happen just in the last couple of years or the last five years. They last happened over the last thirty years. For example, right now, the, the share of, of total income going to labor as opposed to capital is at a low low point. And that, that ratio has gone through major cycles through all of economic history. Will it turn up at this point? Makes sense that, it, that various things that are going on might, might cause it to turn up. And that would be seen as a positive because the income distribution would become a little flatter. But it's, it's not going to suddenly become flat. In the end, I think you shouldn't look for major differences, therefore, because of a new administration in the U.S., given that the undercurrents, as I've described them, are real. They're not just perceptions or uh, you may see a more uh, different approach to to tackling them. I I expect that's what I would see, but uh, you're still going to see attention being given to them. And for example, Will will there be a big change in the way the United States deals with an important trade partner to both of us, which is China? That's a question mark for me. I don't know if they'll actually change that. Possibly it'll be a different tone, but the underlying uh, issues clear to remain. And I don't. And I think people have overanalyzed the differences between the you know the two candidates and what it might mean economically. But it's more about you know how you know I think business uncertainty has been huge over the past four years. And my belief is it'll be lower, which is going to be good for investment. Basically, I've made no secret over the last four years that the the predominant problem the Canadian business faced was uncertainty, and that was holding back investment. Whether it was NAFTA, which was right away, right? And then it became NAFTA implementation, and and it it just seemed like there was always something else that was making them uncertain and not confident enough to get going on their plans, even though there's lots of things that may not change. This looks like a pretty easy call, that the the environment should be more, less uncertain, more predictable, and therefore more amenable to making longer-term investment decisions. But uncertainty in general is not lower. Given the pandemic, uncertainty is extremely high. So like I said, there's always something. But all, all other things equal, you would not expect... The United States to be, you know, one of your main sources of uncertainty, you know, like, like it has been. Yeah, that's a really interesting contextualization of of the politics we've seen, and it's interesting to hear you talk about sort of how the populism may remain and the way that labor and labor unions may change in in the future, even. I think it may. Yeah, I mean, you, you, and I, I think the the notion of trade policies being used to be on a little bit more on the protectionist tilt, if you like, it's kind of a too too negative of a term. But nationalism might be a better a better term. Uh, that the things might be a little more nationalist than free flowing internationalist for quite a while, because a lot of people who are in that zone of discontent 
look to trade as one of the one of the important channels of how this is, has occurred. And they're not wrong about that. It's just that at the same time, they're better off than they would be without it. But they're not as an, enough better off to really feel as a, themselves as a full supporter of it. And that's a tricky thing to not navigate as a policymaker. In other words, you don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. You know, if you're, right. you think of being strategic, it's very, very hard to be quote unquote strategic around trade policy when most of the benefits come through the consumers. For example, are we benefiting from the cost, the little, the little you have to pay for a fantastic television nowadays? Right. You know, my first television when I was in grad school was like $600, an electrohome made in Kitchener. And it was a beautiful TV, no question about it. But imagine what $600 would be today. Uh, you know, I bought that in 1978, okay? And so, uh, you know, we think about what has happened over the past 40 or 50 years in terms of the cost of things like that. That's because of trade. So if trade changes, I mean, is one of your concerns that we may end up paying a lot more for some of these consumer goods we've sort of taken to be, you know, nowadays you see TVs getting thrown out, I'm going to say yeah. all the time, but it's not uncommon. There's no question that if this thing uh, makes a, a real trend towards what I'll call deglobalization or reversing some of the progress that we've made in terms of becoming more integrated and cost, cost minimizers through international trade. If we back some of that up with trade restrictions, some of the policies that the, the Trump administration has followed, they add directly to the costs to the consumer uh, while at the same time almost certainly reducing employment, not raising it. Okay, so of course you can find in the appliance business. That's one of the big things that the Trump administration did is put tariffs on uh, imported appliances. Well, so for an average family, the costs of the major appliances in the house have gone up a lot. You know, over this time period. So what happens to that money? Well, you know, off off it goes. It disappears from that point of view, and it's no longer available for that family to spend on all the other things that they want to buy for their home. And so that that cuts into employment in lots of other sectors. And so that raising cost while at the same time as reducing employment, well, we had a term for that back in the 1970s, didn't we, Gabe? Stagflation. Stagflation. And so that's, that is definitely a stagflation risk that we face in this context if that, if that deglobalization becomes an actual trend. My sense of it is that companies are finding ways for the most part, of managing their supply chains in such a way that uh, that isn't happening much yet. But, uh, of course, governments have the power to to put much more extreme tariffs in place to try to force companies back onshore. And I think this is a policy that would certainly backfire. Sometimes there is a perception that one of the losses of not having these, having, say, TVs manufactured in North America is that you know, just having those jobs, having engineers, technical jobs like that creates expertise around this technology, which can lead to, you know, technological innovation and job growth that wouldn't necessarily be easy to, to predict, say. Well, if, if examined as a single case, you're talking about television, that could be true. So, but I think if we now, if we try to do that today, let's, let's reinstate television manufacturing business back here in Canada. 
that would be a recipe for one of two things, either a $3,000 television set that nobody would buy, so the company would go out of business, okay? Or a fully automated production center that would uh, basically robots would, would be doing 90, 90% or more of all the, the work involved in producing that television. That would be quite a lot less expensive television, but it would be uh, still more expensive but it would not create the job that uh, the underlying policy is looking to do. Of course, this is something that economists can debate, but not many of them do. Uh, most of us would agree that we are better off to have international trade liberalization just as we have domestic trade liberalization. So I'm going to bet that you don't do your own dry cleaning and you probably only make a certain percentage of your own meals. And so you being able to go out into the marketplace and get somebody to do your dry cleaning or to make a meal for you makes you better off, but also makes those people better off because you're spending your money that you've earned doing what you do all day, spending it on them. Well, that's that's free trade within your economy. But extending that concept to an international context takes advantage of skills and other com- competitive advantages in other countries. And allows you, as Canada, to, to focus on the things that you do well. I mean, you can look around you. Canada may have some competitiveness uh, issues, but, but we've, we've been doing quite well as, a, as an economy over through history. So we can do better. I'm not saying we can't, but it would not be. We would not do better by becoming protectionist. By the way, if we're protectionist against somebody, why should they buy our stuff? we're still going to be an exporting nation in the end. We have to be. So if we can put up protectionist barriers against foreign countries, why should they buy stuff from us? That's the other side that people seem not to think about. Oh, you're right. There's certain facts, including the fact that we're so our population is small that we just can't change. That's right. I'm going to pivot for a minute, but to interest rates for a second, just because that seems to be the topic that everyone focuses on when you say central bank. Interest rates were low before we went into this crisis, and there was actually an effort to raise interest, which now doesn't seem possible. How long can interest rates stay low, and what are the long-term effects in, in your view? Well, the, the the literature, the economics literature has a pretty, pretty solid understanding of uh, what I'll call real interest rates. So the interest rate after you take inflation out of it, okay, and uh, the risk-free one. We call it R star. It's the, the natural rate of interest. And the history of the natural rate of interest is that it was really low all through history, and then it went up a lot, late 60s, 1970s, and then, of course, the 1980s. And then since then, it's been falling steadily. Well, that, that profile I just described matches, and not accidentally, it matches almost perfectly the demographic profile. That is, the people like me, who were the baby boomers. We came, we worked, and we retired. So that's that big bulge in population growth. Huh. So that big bulge in population growth is a global bulge, and it's now over. We're coming down the far side of it. And uh, just to tell you, therefore, that the natural rate of interest has been following for really good fundamental reasons, that is, demographic reasons. Uh, And it will continue to decline gently between now and, say, probably 2050, which is about the point when population growth will bottom out to zero. Well, it'll be zero. Wow. 
with that base in mind, then we layer on on top what happened to inflation. Because when we look at an interest rate, it includes that rate plus the inflation rate. And the inflation rate, of course, surged in the early 1970s, and it took until the mid-80s to get back down. And, of course, we've had roughly 2% inflation since around 1990. And so your interest rate would be that real interest rate, the natural rate, plus 2% if everything were normal. Right now, of course, they're not normal. So I don't want to claim that today's conditions stay forever, but the real interest rate could stay really low for a really long time. That's what I would expect. So what matters to interest rates as we see them is what happens to the outlook for inflation. And as that that outlook firms up and gets back to the 2% line, then interest rates would drift back up to that level someday. Throughout, therefore, we're looking at relatively low interest rates from, you know, from my lifetime's point of view. I mean, my goodness, I started my first mortgage was around uh, 13%. So people today will pay more, far less interest through their lives than I did. And that will change how they manage their lives. When do they choose to buy a home in their life cycle and that sort of thing. So that, that that's all positive because interest, it, it, it's fundamentally, it's, it's a cost to your life. And so, yes, it does. When people uh, get into a new environment, it does encourage risk-taking, both by households and by firms, because they're reaching for yield. And so I think it takes time for everybody to adapt to that new regime of relatively low interest rates. And we may need to continue those kinds of policies that protect people from themselves, sort of guardrails that we put up, which we call macroprudential policies. And that's that's worked pretty well for us so far. So that's going to be continued. So do I have any concerns? Well, no, uh, not really. I think that it needs to be adjusted to, but it will be adjusted to. It's a very powerful force. It's a very, very powerful force, an undeniable force, force of nature. And so uh, interest rates are low, and that's it. It's not like somebody can just decide tomorrow to have interest rates at 4% like they were, you know, 20 years ago. You can't just decide to do that and and, uh, somehow prevent whatever it is your concerns are. No, it seems increasingly difficult, right? It seems like every time there's even a notion that it might go up, the stock markets flinch and a lot of people get worried and because it seemed like the interest rate from the outside looks like the only lever that they're pulling and increasingly it looks like it has to stay low for the moment because of economic conditions. So I just sort of wondered how that pressure felt on the inside as a Bank of Canada governor. Well, no, it was, I never thought of it as pressure. It's more of a uh, an understanding of where the economy is going to go and what interest rate would would be the one that would, uh, the, the path for interest rates that would give us the 2% inflation target. You know, think of the economy, you know, the bottom part of the K doing its transition, getting back up into the top part of the K, economic growth going back to its trend line and inflation going back to 2%. If all those things, it's like a rising tide. If all those things are happening over time, then of course companies will be earning more profits and, and uh, be in a much stronger position. And so as interest rates drift up, it's something that happens as one symptom of of an improving economy. And as that symptom comes along with other symptoms that are good for companies, you know, the stock market will sort it out, but the rising tide will raise all the boats. Uh, So whereas, you know, when when people think of a a pivot in interest rates, then they start saying, well, the stock market needs to be revalued and that kind of thing. There may be uh, risks around that, that, you know, the bond market seems to think that we're in for a really, really long period of 
zero or or really low or very possibly negative inflation. If that expectation proves to be untrue, uh, then the bond market's going to price in you know a return to two percent inflation, and there could be a convulsion. The, the day that the bond market comes to that realization, there will be you know some convulsions around that, and stocks will sell off, and all those kinds of things. But it's not a crisis. It's just the normal digestion effects that one goes through in markets when expectations change to the evolving circumstances. And they tend to go in in bunches. Like, you know, they don't go in a perfectly straight line. That's the first thing you learn in economics. Nothing goes in a straight line. Well, this has been a fascinating conversation. There's so much more we could talk about housing, you know, the energy market, immigration. I'll just throw it to you and see if there's any topic you think that's really important that people understand. Perhaps the energy market, which is so critical to uh, Canada's economic foundations, uh, that's not going to change. But what may change is the all the parameters around it. We're seeing companies uh, moving towards uh, reduced emissions and zero emissions uh, out in 2050 and so on. So Canada's uh, energy marketplace is changing fundamentally as companies become more and more carbon transparent, you know, actually publishing every uh, decimal point around their carbon transmissions. And they will if they have targets. They'll be very, very clear. Uh, Investors are going to be able to distinguish between shades of green as opposed to right now, it seems like investors are kind of looking at whether you're green or not green. And that's not a fine enough spectrum to be doing this on. And they're going to discover that Canadian companies are in the good shades of green. Well, it sounds like you're optimistic, but I just want to really thank you for coming on the show. You were really generous with your time, and this was a great conversation. Well, it was my pleasure. That was Stephen Palaz, a special advisor at Osler, and just the ninth person to act as the governor of the Bank of Canada, our central bank. Thank you for listening to this episode of Down to Business, and thanks to the team, Bryce Hall on music and production, Yadula Hussein on editing, and Pamela Heaven and Victoria Wells for web support. As always, I ask that you consider sharing this with a friend and rating Down to Business on your podcast app. I'm Gabe Friedman, and until next week, you can find all your business news at financialpost.com.